the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, epics, odes, gorp, glop, grunge, and thinking of flipping your space station with new tile and appliances and a boost up from decaying orbit. Are you, Christopher? Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, why not upgrade to an all-new stainless steel near-Earth asteroid instead? I couldn't think of a reason at all. Let's do it. Uh, plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Bain Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. We talk this time with poet Frederick Turner on the podcast. Fred Turner is a well-known poet, founders professor of literature at the University of Texas at Dallas, and he's the winner of many awards, including Poetry Magazine's highest prize. And he's now the author of Apocalypse, a science fiction epic poem in the tradition of Homer and Virgil that we are serializing on the Bain.com website. We'll talk to Fred about the writing of modern epic poetry and the character, story, and setting of Apocalypse, which is now appearing in weekly installments updating every Thursday at Bain.com. It's a good story, and Fred tells it in traditional iambic pentameter, full of great wit, wonder, cool ideas, and beautiful turns of phrase. And we also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. That's all coming up. Here's the news. Ho, 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 here's something cool. The new August hardcovers are set to appear. And these include a collaboration between two great Bane authors. Drumroll, please. Nice. Uh, wait for it. Between Larry Correa and John Ringo. They are the co-authors of a new book set in Larry Correa's Monster Hunter universe. The book is called Monster Hunter Memoirs Grunge. This one has a story set in the past of Larry's series, specifically in Seattle of the 1980s. Monster Hunter Memoirs Grunge is the mostly true story of the life and times of one of MHI's most effective and flamboyant hunters. Pro tips for up-and-coming hunters range from how to dress appropriately for jogging, low-profile body armor and multiple weapons, to how to develop contacts among the Japanese Yakuza. To why it's not a good idea to make hillbilly jokes to trolls. Yes, grunge harkens back to the golden days of monster hunting when Reagan was in office. Ray and Susan Shackelford were top hunters, and Seattle sushi was authentic. Also out in August, On to the Asteroid by Travis S. Taylor and Les Johnson. It's a near future where solar system-wide space travel is in bloom. In order to mine an asteroid, the goal is to bring it closer to Earth, but orbital mechanics are tricky, and close to Earth proves to be far too close for comfort, with looming destruction from space about to become a grim reality. Yikes. <laughs> now astronauts, scientists, engineers, and people in all the burgeoning space businesses must team together to stop the asteroid before it is too late for humanity and the planet it calls home. Monster Hunter Memoirs, Grunge by Larry Correa and John Ringo, and On to the Asteroid by Travis S. Taylor and Les Johnson, which is the spiritual sequel to Les and Travis's Back to the Moon, by the way, 
are available August 2nd at Booksellers Everywhere. I want to welcome Frederick Turner to the podcast. Hi, Fred. Frederick Turner is the Founders Professor of Arts and Humanities at the University of Texas at Dallas. Fred was homeschooled as a kid by anthropologist parents while they were doing their research in Zambia, then studied at Oxford University for both his undergraduate and his graduate degrees. He's taught at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and uh, Kenyon College, where he was the editor of the Kenyon Review. He's taught at UTD, from that is the University of Texas at Dallas from 1985 until now. Fred has published over 30 books, including epic poems, books on Shakespeare, science fiction, and many collections of poetry, criticism, and poetry and translation. He's won several awards and prizes, including Hungary's highest literary honor and Poetry Magazine's highest prize, and has been nominated for the Nobel Prize internationally dozens of times as well. Fred considers himself a poet in the tradition of Homer in Virgil, I believe. Um, we'll ask him more about that. His science fiction epic poem, The New World, won renown in the 1990s. Fred has followed it up with an epic poem called Genesis and now, and now out being serialized on the Bain.com website and then available in ebook edition is Apocalypse, an epic poem. So I should explain to the listeners what we're doing at Bain.com. We are serializing Fred's epic poem, Apocalypse, in weekly installments. Each week on Thursday at noon, Eastern, U.S. time that is, we will update the poem's main page with a link to the newest installment, and we update the main Bain.com page as well with a notice that the new section is available. And I believe starting uh, this Thursday, what we're going to do is put a portion of the latest installment book on the main page. We've got... Um, we haven't done this before, and now we've got our uh, our way of doing it worked out. The serialization will continue through September. Then in October, the Bain ebook containing the complete poem will be available at booksellers everywhere, including at Bain ebooks, of course. So check weekly for the continuing apocalypse on the Bain.com website. So, Fred, let me ask you, why on earth would you decide to write an epic science fiction poem here in the 21st century? It sort of decided to uh, to rewrite itself, really. I think any story has its preferred form to be written in, um, and um, the, the 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 kind of stories that I like to tell, or the kind of story I wanted to tell with this particular um, uh, poem was one that needed to be in poetry. Um, uh, I, I, Werner Vinge is, a, is, 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 a, is an acquaintance of mine, and he has a very nice um, uh, little formula. He, 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 he says um, uh, the only stories he's interested in are the ones in which the world is different at the end from what it was at the beginning. Now, stories like that have, an, have a generic name, and that is epic. Uh, think of Homer's Iliad that tells of the fall of Troy and the birth of Greece, or the epic of Genesis, which begins in paradise and ends in a fallen world where we must forgive our brothers. 
the Aeneid begins with the fallen city and ends with the founding of the Roman Empire. The Popol Vuh, the Mayan epic, begins with nothing and ends with the creation of the universe. The Mahabharata ends in a battle that changes the moral language of an entire culture. And there's a special sound in such stories, something echoey and shivery and strange. They don't just use the existing language, they show how that language began, reaching back to where it didn't yet have sounds and connected meanings. They make new language or redefine old language. They change the ball field, they change the rules. They add a new axiom to the logic. So there's two, two sort memory. of... And yeah. this is what poetry can do. This is the, uh, this is the, 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 uh, the, how can I put it? It's the, uh, it, it's the special role of poetry. So I wanted it, uh, the story wanted to be told in that form. And so I did, uh, that's what I did. Yeah. So there's two strains in this. There's the the epic as in a world transforming kind of story that transforms the outside world for uh, for and then there's this sort of uh, the poetic quality you're talking about the singing the um, the change the use of language um, so there's form and content that um, go into it why how do you do it that's what I'd like to do how do you write um, an epic poem this thing is a book-length manuscript how do you write iambic pentameter um, for <laughs> for that for 75,000 words of in telling a story does it just ring in your head while you're writing it, I just can't imagine it yeah uh, it, it, well the, you know the old uh, uh, practice 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 but uh -huh. but um, uh, you know, think of Shakespeare who wrote innumerable plays and Milton and Wordsworth. The, once you get into it, once you get that rhythm in your head, in fact, it becomes quite difficult for a while if you've been working on it um, not to get, fall into iambic pentameter when you're just um, having convers ordinary conversations with people. Um, it, it's, it, 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 it gets into your head. And that's one of the reasons it's so memorable. Um, uh, it, 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 poetry, there's something else too. Poetry in verse is what unlocks the visionary function of the brain. And there's quite a lot of neuroscientific evidence about that now. That's why we have, you know, sea shanties and uh, Buddhist chants and... Uh, uh, and slogans and um, uh, all of those ways in which we uh, we repeat uh, marching songs that uh, get us into a certain kind of rhythm and that makes us able to coordinate with each other and it also turns on certain capacities in the brain uh, again things that are being studied right now yeah, so why um, in particular did you choose iambic pentameter? Well, it's the, in English, it's the verse form that is most easily mem memorized by actors and, and, and readers. It's, uh, that's why Shakespeare wrote in iambic pentameter uh, as a practical matter that you can remember iambic pentameter very well, partly because it 
takes up exact uh, the iambic pentameter line takes up pretty much exactly three seconds, and three seconds is the time of the human present moment, and it's also the time, the average time, uh, in which we, when we're speaking, we pause in order to think up the next bit of grammar and lexicon for the next three seconds. So it's a natural rhythm, a natural informational rhythm for human beings. It's the right bite-sized chunk for the brain. And um, uh, that's why people use the three-second line. Uh, it's not always iambic, iambic. Sometimes it's trochaic or, or dactylic, but they use it all over the planet. Um, it's culturally universal. Um, and uh, it, it's, in a sense, you could say it's the natural form for, you know, for, for human serious speech. Well, now you're making me wonder why anyone ever writes in prose. <laughs> Well, uh, it, it, it prose, it, unless you do, unless you get into that, uh, you know, the dance of, 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 of meter, um, uh, prose is, uh, prose is easier. Um, but there's something else too. The uh, human brain is an extraordinary thing. And any time anybody says anything, um, it has, the brain has the capacity to, uh, manufacture out of what uh, they what it hears all kinds of metaphorical meanings uh, implications uh, connotations uh, tones um, uh, attitudes and so on if we just want the facts then we have to edit out all of that penumbra of meaning and zero in on the, uh, the the correct definitional definitional dictionary definitional meanings uh, of of what you, uh, of what one's hearing, um, and we prose is the medium in which it's easy to do that because we're not getting as it were carried away. Uh, we, you know, it's sort of edited down like a an instruction manual or, or like a a news report or or, or, or like a uh, you know a piece of uh, bureaucratic legalese, it, uh, it, which has to be unambiguous. Uh, so there's a good reason for uh, yeah, for prose. It's unambiguity, but that sort of closes us closes us off to, let's say, larger considerations. So, well, let's talk about Apocalypse. Um, can you give us a general idea of the, of the story, the situation humanity and the planet are in at the, uh, at the start of the poem? Well, it's uh, about 2067, and um, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the there's been a massive acceleration of climate change, uh, whether caused by humans or not, um, and there's quite a lot of evidence that there has been climate change. Um, and the uh, Antarctic uh, ice shelves have melted, um, and the sea level has risen by about seven feet already, on its way possibly to rising about 260 feet, uh, which would, it would be if all the ice melted. Um, so 
uh, and there has also been accompanying massive um, uh, change in the weather. That is, uh, it's hugely more violent and more extreme. And uh, in the poem, various catastrophes um, occur, including um, an Antarctic hurricane um, that uh, enters the, the North Sea between England and Scandinavia, and, uh, and at the beginning of the poem is about to wreak havoc there. Um, well, the, in a strange kind of way, though, this massive climate change presents to the human race an enormous opportunity for human genius. Uh, something like what happened 10,000 years ago when in the Neolithic Revolution when we turned over uh, into the agricultural revolution. And the agricultural revolution was to change the face of the earth. It has changed the face of the earth. And in a sense, that's not what the uh, farmers were intending to do. But we're now in a situation in, this, in the poem where we are challenged, really, to take charge of the planet, to terraform this planet for its own good and also for ours, uh, to garden this planet. And this, in a sense, is a, it's a kind of shocking idea. And in the poem, it's also mysteriously linked um, to the emergence of a sort of self-organizing consciousness in the cyber, cyber sphere. It's almost as if the, the, that ancient ga uh, uh, goddess, uh, Gaia, has um, come to life. But uh, uh, I don't want to give too much away. Well, um, all right. So, uh, readers of Apocalypse, you're going to have to stipulate to themselves or, or him or herself that um, the global warming, perhaps man-made, has occurred and, and caused all kind of havoc And as the poem begins. Um, I happen to be a global warming skeptic, at least a man-made global warming skeptic, for uh, a variety of, of I think, well-reasoned reasons. Let's not get into that. But I did love the poem, and so did Tony, my boss, and we just really um, were just so happy to be able to present it. So you intend for there to be a heroic quality, though, to the epic, because that's what an epic is, right? Noah Blazo is uh, sort of a modern, it seems to me like I pictured him as a modern Jason who organizes these argonauts of science and law and various other uh, disciplines to deal with the disaster, however it came about. Can you tell us about Noah? Well, <clears throat> Noah is, um, he's a sort of combination, you might say, of um, Jack Kilby, that very modest Texan at Texas Instruments who invented the, uh, the transistor and got the whole the cybernetic uh, 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 revolution going. And Norman Borlaug, who was the uh, originator of the um, of the Green Revolution, and probably saved more human lives than any other human being ever has. I mean, literally, uh, maybe one and a half billion people. I've seen estimates by by producing um, those strains of genetically modified uh, grain and so on that uh, 
um, rescued all of those uh, millions of people from um, malnutrition and starvation. And, um, and maybe we could add um, people like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs, who are these, um, uh, th these kind of I I imaginatively prophetic inventors. Um, now, uh, what, uh, at the beginning of the story, what Noah has been able to do is um, uh, he's been able to come up with a solar battery using um, carbon nanotube technology um, and molecular-sized cells and high-efficiency high photo photoelectrics that is um, uh, uh, that essentially uh, gets all of our power from the sun. Um, uh, you can paint it on to any surface and um, uh, it, it, uh, it's electronically self-organizing and uh, you can put in a couple of terminals and get electricity out of it. So that's, that's what he has done. Um, and he is now battling with all kinds of um, bureaucrats of very, very different stripes to go for the uh, for what he ironically calls the quick, dirty technological fix to climate warming. Um, and uh, uh, Noah has a kind of uh, style um, uh, that is, um, uh, it, 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 he, 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 likes, he likes to wear a big white hat and he's, uh, he's got a bolo tie and he's uh, he's sort of funny. So he's a kind of. I guess that would be a a modern hero, the eccentric innovator. Um, yes. So a, another character who is kind of at the heart of the group, where Noah is, um, where Noah is like the head. Annalise Anna Grotius. Um, you describe her in the poem this way. A polymath whose curiosity, unlimited by modesty or pride, carried ideas over from one field, like spores, into another somewhere else. Because you might not know her actual job was as curator of Renaissance art in Amsterdam's once famous Wright Museum. How do you say that, by the way, Fred? Reich Museum. Reich Museum. So she's got a skill that's extremely important um, for, for all this to work, right? Well, besides being a, a you know an expert a curator, she's also um, an expert amateur in blockchain technology, and uh, you know the the thing that is at the bottom of Bitcoin, and the and also the natural law basis of human coinage and exchange. Uh, her name actually is uh, she, she's actually a descendant. Uh, of uh, the great Dutch uh, expert on natural law, uh, Grotius. And um, uh, she is, um, uh, she's inherited some of that. And she has invented a kind of Bitcoin-like system that automatically um, identifies and rewards anyone that has con uh, contributed ideas and value um, to the internet, 
um, according to the usage of those ideas and that value by the users. Um, and uh, you know, rather like um, uh, 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 Linux has um, given the technology away. So that's... Um, so she's sort of like the intellectual property fairy who's... <laughs> It's <laughs> come along. She she's an expert on. She's the IP fairy, exactly. Yeah. And you can you know you can do that if you uh, in fiction you know you can yeah. do that. Well, she's I mean she's the necessary humanities sort of person uh, on the team that um, that that deals with the law and um, how all this um, all this technology is going to be attained and used, right? Yes, and very much the, the, the law that she's particularly interested in is the, is the law of the commons, the whole notion of the commons and the creative commons. Um, is there a, an edge to the world that our state laws um, uh, 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 to, to the writ where they run? And beyond that edge, um, uh, there are all kinds of possibilities. I mean, think of cyberspace, for instance, um, that can be invented or discovered or, 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 or colonized or claimed um, that don't come under the existing law. And uh, then uh, presumably any individual human uh, has certain, um, uh, uh, not even rights, uh, that they, they, they have certain affordances where they can do things um, that, uh, you know, are, are not, under, uh, not under the law. Uh, and that's a large part of what the poem is about. Yeah, so, it, I mean, it's a way of, um, of dealing with the tragedy of the commons, as it's called, um, without having some some totalitarian world government that, that tries to do it and destroys everything that's good about being human in the process. Exactly. Um, it's, uh, uh, it, 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 it's, um, uh, uh, the, the tragedy of the commons was based on the idea of privation. That is, if you take something out of the commons, then there's less for everybody else. But the informational uh, 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 commons is something quite different. Uh, uh, information tends naturally towards abundance. And the abundance of information and the abundance of the power to control and organize that information also um, feeds back on our technology in such a way that we can do far more with far less. That, in other words, the, the notion of natural resources becomes uh, obsolete. Uh, you, as long as there is any kind of physical resources around, if you've got an abundance of information, you'll be able to do anything you want with it. And that's one of the directions, one of the ideas in the poem. 
But she, all right, so at the beginning, she's doing something very um, specific and action-oriented and, and humane, which is, um, tell us a bit about the Night Watch by Rembrandt. It's kind of an emblem, uh, you know, it's kind of an emblem of what the whole poem's about. She's she's saving this poem. I mean, she's saving this uh, painting from the uh, yeah. Reich Museum. That's a really cool opening scene. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that, uh, that, that, that uh, great big Arctic hurricane comes down the North Sea and plunges straight into, uh, into Holland. And now the, um, uh, the, the uh, although obviously du brilliant Dutch engineering has been preparing for this, it wasn't preparing, wasn't preparing for, a, for a, an Arctic hurricane, for a new kind of weather on top of it. And... Um, uh, the uh, and the great dikes uh, that hold off the North Sea um, are, are, are threatened. And Anna Lisa is she's a curator, particularly of the Flemish collection, and uh, she uh, uh, knows that um, uh, she's been you know watching the newscasts and so on. She knows what is going to happen, and she um, cut. She's going to rescue the uh, uh, the Rembrandt's great painting, the which is her favorite painting, rescue it and carry it up to her office, which is right at the very top of the museum. Um, so that's part of the, that's the way the poem begins. Now, the significance of the painting is that the painting is of um, a volunteer group. They're like the, you know, a volunteer fire service or something like that, or, or, or that they are a group of people, uh, citizens, um, who are defending their city. Uh, and this was during the, uh, uh, the, 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 you know, the war between the Habsburg Empire and the newly emergent uh, Republic of, uh, of the Netherlands. And, uh, uh, the inter one of the interesting things about it is that there are two leaders of this motley group of very cheerful, very sort of Shakespearean folk uh, who are marching out of the city to uh, to take care of the city. Uh, and those two, one of those two leaders is Catholic and the other is Protestant. And that was pretty revolutionary in those days. And they're volunteers. They are the um, they're, they're, they're Part of you, what you might call the creative commons. They are um, uh, they're in that, as it were, state of nature in which we voluntarily make things better. Uh, so they're, they're the creative commons. Yeah. So that's the the meaning of the painting, among other things. Yeah, and um, it, it's kind of emblematic then of the story. What tell us about some of our our uh, volunteer firefighters, <laughs> our volunteer earth savers that, um, that we're going to meet in the poem, the geoengineers, um, Chandra Lucy, um, <laughs> the cast. Uh, well, um, Chandra engineer, uh, you know, he, he's being a Parsi. A lot of the Parsis have, uh, uh, occupational names and his name is actually Chandra engineer, Chandra Sekhar engineer. Uh, he's a Bangladeshi um, who is a, a sort of mathematical genius. Um, 
in understanding three-dimensional flows. And uh, he, his particular achievement was to manage a major um, a typhoon that uh, hits um, uh, Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, which, as I think everybody knows, is only a few feet above sea level and is, you know, by Chandra's time is, you know, is already um, uh, uh, inundating the city. And he manages uh, by uh, uh, using um, satellite technology to understand the flows of water well enough to save the city. Um, so uh, uh, he has a son uh, he's been abandoned by his wife, who, uh, uh, you know, Chandra was somebody who was very promising in politics but didn't want to do it. He'd much rather do what he's doing. And uh, his wife is ambitious, and so she goes off with a, uh, with a Japanese entrepreneur. But, um, uh, but uh, he has a son, and uh, his son, Gopal, is an even more amazing mathematical genius. And that, um, uh, that uh, you know, that's their contribution uh, to this, uh, to, the, to the story. Um, then there's uh, Lucy, and Lucy is, uh, she's a Chinese born on the, 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 uh, uh, sh the, the banks of the, of the Yangtze, um, uh, uh, who was inspired by the poems of Bai Ju Yi, uh, in the in uh, in the caves along the the Yangtze, uh, Bai Ju Yi wrote poems in caves and and uh, uh, becomes a, um, uh, a, 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 a a an expert in uh, quantum computation and uh, what she's been doing is developing global climate models that really can in real time. Um, understand what is going on with the weather. Um, uh, she's, you know, a number of these characters have already taken what I call the treatment, and the treatment is light extension um, uh, 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 therapy. Uh, and so you have characters who are old, but still with this sort of unnatural vitality. And uh, some people are rather hostile and suspicious ab about them, but they are, well, anyway, that's a whole other subplot of it. Um, but uh, Lucy is this amazing, tiny uh, Chinese lady with this incredible vitality and this great directness and, um, and this uh, brilliant white hair. Um, and she and um, uh, uh, Noah are great friends. And then there's Manny Dandolo, who is the, yeah, he's the rather louche um, um, uh, uh, savior of the city of Venice, the, the, the mayor of, De of Venice. And um, he's, uh, he's part of the story, uh, uh, a very laid-back uh, character who likes to live uh, well. And uh, a whole bunch of them. There's, there's Ellie Tran, the, the Vietnamese um, uh, expert on biochemistry. Um, the, uh, the, I think the, 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 I got taken over by the characters myself. So 
I, 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 I feel that I know them, that sometimes I feel like calling one of them up and then realizing <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> uh, I'd have to be calling up uh, that strange place where the muses live. Yeah, there's um, there on a calliope phone, perhaps. I don't... <laughs> the calliope phone, yeah, there's, right, right. There is um uh, a warrior among them as well. Can you tell us about him? And he's he's also a forward thinker on military matters. Oh yeah, yeah. There's uh, Peter Frobisher, who is very much the sort of Royal Navy type, although he's been sort of basically decommissioned because he had such radical ideas about uh, about naval warfare and um uh he he he's you know very much the royal navy type and he likes old fashioned to some extent old fashioned naval language um and uh, he he's very interested in the idea of uh uh, the uh, 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 you know uh, the way in which um, a a horde of tiny insects of ants can overwhelm uh, a great serpent, and he's sort of interested in uh, barbarian warfare. He's interested in uh, the total self sufficiency of uh, of individual warriors, and. Um, uh, all of this is translated into very, very advanced, high-tech, low-tech uh, naval tactics. And uh, there's a great deal of, you know, one of the big features of the poem is, um, is naval warfare in the icy waters of the southern seas. And there's a good reason why it should be there, um, uh, uh, which is part of the... Uh, geoengineering technology uh, itself. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, what are they doing there, and who is opposed to who the bad guys or, or the, the people opposed to our geoengineers, and how does it lead to war? Um, well, uh, there, there are a whole bunch of... There's a, a whole bunch of factions of various kinds that don't really want um, uh, geoengineering solution. Um, uh, you could say, that, I mean, for the statists, for the people who really believe that the state needs to take everything over, it's a dandy excuse to seize more and more power into the hands of the state. For the, um, uh, you know, for the whole uh, uh, environmentalist movement. I mean, there are lots of aspects of the environmentalist movements. Um, uh, uh, again, um, the kind of discontents uh, and, in fact, uh, uh, disasters uh, that result from whole populations having to move inland and other populations because of climate change ha uh, having to uh, to uh, again to to uh, to migrate and try to get into other people's land. Um, these these troubles are, are very uh, uh, these troubled waters are very good to fish in, and um, uh, it, 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 you know the the uh, 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 the sort of the environmental 
the military environmental industry, you might say, is um, uh, they, in a sense, want the global warming to go on um, uh, only slowly and they can manage it. There are some nations like uh, Russia and Canada that um, very much want the uh, the North Sea to become, uh, they want the Arctic uh, uh, um, uh, Ocean to, uh, to become the new Mediterranean. Um, there are, um, then there are the kind of, uh, the uh, sort of Heideggerian purists who are against technology altogether. Um, and then there are some, you know, extreme uh, sort of earth-firster types who really want to get rid of uh, nine-tenths of the human population of the earth uh, so that, uh, you know, we can all live in our, in our little Dasein villages and, uh, and cultivate the soil and, and have uh, Boden and, uh, and so on. And, um, and then, of course, there are the Marxists who, um, who love the disruption of, uh, 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 of uh, they, the, the, how can I put it? Um, anything is anything is good to any stick is good to beat capitalism with, um, and a whole bunch of other 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 groups. So, uh, 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 and um, uh, uh, the poem begins with a conference in which um, uh, there, of course, they're all totally deadlocked, and uh, Noah uh, quits in disgust. Um, but then uh, he meets Lucy, and other things start to happen. So, what are they doing to to uh, scientifically to uh, try to address the, the the big problem? Right. Well, um, obviously, one of the problems Noah has already addressed that is um, uh, uh, the you know how to um, uh, you know uh, cut down the amount of uh, carbon uh, that we're putting into the atmosphere by uh, by the by by having a a, a, a true photoelect uh, photoelectric technology. Um, but um, the the impetus of world climate change in the in the fiction of the poem is unstoppable by anything like that by itself. So there are three other uh, technologies that Noah is, is going to use or wants to use. One of them is what's called the Pinatubo effect. When Mount Pinatubo erupted, it flung a great deal of, uh, uh, of sulfur particles into the um, into the atmosphere into the upper atmosphere the stratosphere and they formed a kind of golden uh, heat shield for the planet and the planet the earth cooled down for uh, several years um, afterwards so that's something that could in that human beings could in fact bring about fairly easily by seeding the upper atmosphere with the same kinds of particles you need a few, you know, Boeing 747s full, um, and 
you, you, you know, you could, uh, you kept it going. You could, uh, you could make a, a distinct dent in the, um, uh, in, in, in the warming. Uh, the second technology is, um, uh, this is the, uh, the oceanic technology. The, um, uh, 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 the oceans, the southern oceans, are at the moment um, deserts, basically, um, because although the waters have almost all the minerals, dissolved minerals, to support a really rich marine life, um, there's one that they don't have, and that is iron. Um, uh, when uh, occasionally there's a, uh, when there's a big storm in one of the southern continents, a plume of dust from that storm will fall into the, uh, into the southern ocean, the, Ar the, the Antarctic Ocean. And um, uh, it's been noticed that, that that's followed by an enormous bloom of pl plankton and increase, increase in marine life. Um, so the idea is to um, uh, to uh, 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 salt the southern oceans with iron uh, uh, with iron dust, and um, this will then enable uh, uh, an enormous increase in marine life in plankton, and and then the whole food chain of the uh, the whole marine food chain, both um, plant and, and animal. And uh, when, uh, you know, one of the things that living things do is they die. When they die, uh, they sink down to the bottom of the ocean and they carry all the carbon that they've used to construct their bodies, um, uh, you know, calcium carbonate and so on, uh, their shells and so on. They carry them, their skeletons, they carry them down to the bottom of the ocean, and gigatons of carbon will get buried there. And as, since the oceans are then having the carbon sucked out of them, the, uh, the oceans will then in turn absorb more of the carbon dioxide that is floating around in the air. Uh, there's this whole ocean atmosphere thing that is going on. Uh, that the if you the, the the if the ocean is too saturated with carbon dioxide, then it's not going to be able to suck carbon dioxide out of the air. So that's the second technology they're using, and the the, the, the there's a nice bonus to that, which means that the the, the food the the marine stocks, the food stocks of the oceans, and the biodiversity of the oceans is going to be enormously increased by this. Work and the third piece of technology is um, essentially um, uh, seawater agriculture. It's uh, it's uh, it, taking the desert uh, seacoasts of the world and turning them into farms using um, specially bred and genetically modified plants that flourish on seawater. And what that does is because plants uh, take carbon. Uh, dissolve carbon out of the out of the water that waters them. Um, uh, uh, the carbon is again taken out of the oceans and it is buried in terms, you know, in the terms of the creation of soil from the dying of of the roots of plants when they've 
when they've passed away. And um, uh, and then other effects, the salt water that is used to fertilize them sinks down to the uh, into the earth. And since it's more dense than than um, fresh water, the fresh water will float on top of it. And so the fresh water will come out in springs in those desert landscapes. And I've actually seen this happen in Eritrea. Um, uh, uh, as a result of the work of another Noah Blazo character, um, uh, Carl Hodges, who started the um, most amazing project there, and he's done another one in Sonora Desert and another one in Gujarat and so on. Uh, there's, some, there's just some cool stuff going on in the world. Uh, but those are the main technologies that are, uh, that, 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 that are employed to, uh, uh, to cool the planet down. So Noah and his... Um his geo engineers and such, um, they just dis decide they're just going to do this and they start it and they do do it. Um, but there are some, uh, some nations or uh, groups within nations opposed as well. It, it's interesting. You have to, it's an epic, so there must be battles. Um, can you tell us about the battle of, uh, Kerguelen and, and the other one is Candlemas Island, I think Candlemas and, um, it, it seems like it's, I don't know if I've seen it before, but it's like an NGO versus uh, versus nations. Uh. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's a, it, 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 it's a, it's a splendidly um, unequal uh, contest. I mean, it begins with a, the, the Kegelen Island uh, uh, battle isn't really a battle at all. I mean, they're, they're essentially peacefully spreading... Um, iron particles in the uh, southern ocean, the great southern ocean. Kerguelen Island is, is one of those very, very cold islands in that, uh, that world of uh, the, the roaring 40s of those terrible gales that blow around the, blow around the pole. And, um, uh, the, and a uh, uh, contingent of ships from various nations, including both Russia and China uh, 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 are sent to intercept them, and um, uh, the, uh, the 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 terraformers uh, are um, uh, you know uh, you know what they claim is that um, uh, that that they're being attacked on the high seas, which are the commons which are free to all, um, and that therefore the, the fleet uh, that is attacking them is, um, are essentially pirates. And what they do is passive resistance. Uh, they do the kind of thing, actually, oddly enough, that, um, uh, that uh, whaling ships have done defending themselves against... Um, <coughs> uh, against um, uh, Greenpeace attacks. That is, they they lace the ships with razor wire, and they set up huge. And also, what uh, merchant ships do to repel Somali pirates in the Indian Ocean, they rig up very powerful hoses run by the ship's engines, and uh, and just uh, have them pour water at high force all around the. Uh, 
uh, all around the ship. Uh, they don't actively resist, but they passively resist. And um, uh, there's a mishap in all of this, which leads on to some fairly tragic results. Um, but uh, the, 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 the thing turns out to be a public relations triumph and begins to pull some countries that are threatened by, uh, by the floods um, into the into alliance uh, with the terraformers. There's um, there's some uh, we're limited on time, but there's so much more to the to the poem that I'd love to to get to briefly. Um, you have we you've mentioned before this dawning uh, this awakening uh, I guess AI um, sort of sort of presence. Um, and uh, we don't, I don't want to give too much away about all that. Um, and what can we say about it? Um, how do you envision an artificial intelligence awakening and acting on the growing information structure of, uh, of humanity? Well, first of all, I, it's becoming clear that the internet is approaching the number of possible, its connectivity is, is, is approaching the connectivity of the human brain, that is, is beginning to have as many connections at any given moment as the brain does. In other words, to the extent that um, it, 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 if it's just a matter of a quantity of connectivity, then it is on its way to uh, rivaling the human brain, but <clears throat> all of those, all of those devices, or most of, almost all of those devices, up to now, have been uh, Turing devices. That is, they've been Turing calculators that are really um, uh, incapable of self-reflection, um, uh, and they are linear. They're, they're strictly determinist, um, deterministic. Um, uh, but then if you were to add to that the capabilities of a advanced quantum computer, you might have the missing ingredient for the emergence. Uh, and I think it would be emergence. I don't think there's something that, that human beings could do, but the emergence of some kind of intelligence. Now, for most uh, people who have thought about this kind of thing happening. This is something very terrifying and sinister. Um, uh, but uh, I've turned that around. And uh, what if that intelligence were angelic? What if it were an, an angel? Well, you'll, one would have to read the poem to find out. The, yeah. the one more thing you have in the poem is that it wouldn't be an epic if there weren't portents and dangers from the sky. Um, yes. Yeah. What, what possible natural event could threaten Earth even more than the destruction of the of uh, the atmosphere and everything? What might? Um, well, tell us a little bit about uh, wormwood and the. There's a further. Uh, these things are all connected. That there's a poetic or you might say even mystical connection among these things. There's some kind of test of the human species that is going on. Um, and um, 
you know, one of the things that could happen to us uh, is that the solar system itself could be threatened by a cosmic event. And there are plenty of cosmic events that could do that. Um, uh, but this one in particular uh, is something, a, a celestial object that is dubbed by the press Wormwood. And Wormwood is the star uh, of the um, book of Apocalypse, the book of Revelations. Um, and um, uh, in other words, um, uh, to, to talk about it in a sort of, in a deeper way, there's a, a Buddhist book that um, is called The Ten Bulls. And it begins with a search for a bull. Uh, and as the search goes on, it, it, uh, the, the bull signifies, I suppose, um, the achievement of true mystical insight and of peace. Um, as the poem goes on, it turns out that that was not the real thing that the seeker is after anyway. And so there's a turn in the poem towards something else. And um, uh, that's embodied in both the threat and I would say the promise of Wormwood, the star of the apocalypse. Yeah. Well, we find it's... Uh... Your influence by Werner Benji is pretty clear in that part of the poem, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I've been influenced by all kinds of um, uh, science fiction writers, obviously, you know, sort of uh, Olaf Stapledon and Arthur Clarke and uh, uh, Stan Robinson and um, David Brin and... Uh, uh, I, the, the list could go on. Neil Stevenson. Um, uh, you know Benford also. I love the genre. I, I just, uh, uh, I just feel that whenever uh, science fiction writers, whenever science fiction writers get to the point of real epiphany, of real wonder, their language begins to approach the condition of poetry. It begins to be like poetry. And my feeling was, well, why not eliminate the middleman and go straight to poetry? Um, so that was part of the strategy of the of the poem. I mean, I, 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 uh, with this, you know, if you're too sort of oracular, you know, like Charlton Heston in those old sort of biblical movies that you can't help laughing at now, um, uh, then the, the, then that voice doesn't work. But what I've done, among other things, is have my narrator be a complete skeptic and cynic about the epic form itself. I mean, he knows how to use it, and he sort of loves it, but he's perfectly, he's very, he's, he's quite cynical about it. And then there are also characters like Allah, uh, my, uh, my Nigerian, my gigantic, gloomy Nigerian genius, um, who, uh, uh, is is uh, she's somebody who managed to fight back against the Boko Haram and uh, 
you know, she was kidnapped, but uh, she manages to get her revenge and get away. And and she starts a, a group called Mummy's Boko Boys, who are her bodyguards, but also they are the um, uh, they're the sort of counterforce to the Boko Haram. And uh, but anyway, but but the, the the point I'm trying to make is that she has she has, her voice and the voice of that whole part of the poem is very different, um, uh, very uh, kind of nastier and uh, funny too. Yeah, I love the I love her backstory that that you chronicle and form, and the poet is really interesting because he's. A lot of the humor in the poem comes from him just commenting on the fact that he's writing an epic. Um, is do you feel well, that he's that, been go ahead commissioned to write it by Noah, and he doesn't believe you know he 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 thinks that he's the you know he's the wrong person to write it. The only thing he does have is that he really knows the form, he knows how to do it, but um, uh, he's always kind of complaining about. Uh, what he has to do to uh, to make the poem work, to put it together. Yeah, well, he's a great he's a great character and um, a, a fun. Uh, a, his his asides are often amusing and fun. Um, so, uh, what are you working on now these days, Fred? Well, uh, I'm kind of um, recovering for the from the enormous effort of of, of writing Apocalypse, but. Um, I'm uh, I'm translating uh, with my wonderful co-translator, who happens to be a Holocaust survivor, by the way, Jujana Oshvath. I'm uh, translating uh, Goethe's Faust, and um, we've already <laughs> completed a, a collection of the poetry of uh, of Goethe. And Goethe has been very badly translated, which is why we don't know him any uh, know him better. But I think we've been trying to make a translation that people will read with as much pleasure as the best English poetry. So that's our ambition, and that's what we're working on right so, now. That's the way you relax after writing an epic poem. You uh, do a little translation of Faust on the side. <laughs> I, I, I guess if you put it that way, it does sound rather silly. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's pretty amazing. So... Um, a final uh, question: Do you you have some you have the poet work in a certain knowingness? Do you hope that you might inspire more poetry that that you might bring about some kind of uh, not a renaissance, but at least coming back to the form by some uh, modern writers? Oh yes, um, uh, I think. Uh, modernist poetry to a large extent and then even more postmodernist poetry had pretty much the effect of killing it off as far as um, uh, it being a popular form and I think there were two big reasons why it got killed off one was because uh, it didn't have meter it didn't have that memorable and wonderful Music of uh, of poetry that, that you know that you find in uh, Keats and in Chaucer and in Shakespeare and Milton and so on. It didn't have that or Longfellow. You know, uh, actually Frost still had it. Um, uh, and the other thing that that that, that they 
that they killed off to a large extent was narrative, was story. And uh, in the past, the, the, the right way to tell a story was in poetry, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, and in the, in the past, um, uh, uh, poetry always had some kind of a story. And uh, 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 I believe that if we can, you know, certainly in the popular realm, uh, you have something like, you know, uh, Southern Blues. Southern Blues lyrics are very often iambic pentameter. Or, or th think of the, the wonderful lyrics of people like um, uh, um, Cole Porter or um, uh, 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 Leonard, um, oh, what's he called, the Canadian songwriter, Co Leonard Cohen. Um, they're, 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 write, they're writing in, in verse, in meter, um, and one of the reasons why they do, why it, the Beatles wrote in meter, one of the reasons why that works is because of that, that verbal music and that verbal energy. So I, 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 I think that, you know, it's not entirely a desert out there, but I think that we need to have a high culture um, literature that has its roots deep in the, the rich soil of the flourishing and healthy low culture uh, and by low, I don't mean bad I, or, or, or inferior. It's just lower. Um, uh, 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 Bach, the music of Bach really is a compendium of German folk music, uh, just raised to a, a, a you know, sublime level. And I want to see a poetry, a renaissance of poetry. Or, or you think of Shakespeare, you know. Shakespeare's taking this popular form of, uh, uh, you know, uh, of, of, of drama, which would be, you know, equivalent to uh, your pulp fiction or something like that these days, and turns it into the most sublime poetry in the world. Uh, that's what I want to see happen. And that also means that we're going to have to recover the craft of poetry, uh, the capacity to make wonderful verbal music, with meter and rhyme and so on, and the capacity to tell stories in a much more direct and immediate way than plodding old prose. Well, you certainly um, are a great example for uh, for budding poets to follow, uh, especially epic uh, poets that uh, want to try that form. The work is Apocalypse, an epic poem by Frederick Turner. It is being serialized, book by book, in weekly installments on the Bain.com website through September. Then it will be available in ebook form from Bain at ebook retailers everywhere. There's also going to be a print edition out from uh, Ilium Press. I believe it'll be out this fall. So read the poem as it appears on Bain.com and um, then check out those editions later in 2016. Fred, thank you very much for being with us today and sharing um, your insights. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Tony, as always. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. 
It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the Rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad, even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Coursera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Chapter 5 Xenos on Cinnabar Adele had paused in her transcriptions to sip from her glass of beer. Beer from the Mundy estate, bitters actually, brewed with germander rather than hops, had been the table beverage at the townhouse while Adele was growing up. She had never considered the choice as a child. What was, was, as with most children in most situations. As an adult, she supposed the beer was to show voters that Lucius Mundy was a man of the people, despite his rank in society. The doorman ushered a visitor into the hallway on the ground floor. Adele heard only the murmur of voices through the open door of the library where she was working. She took another sip of beer. Her mouth was very dry. Forgetting to eat wasn't a real problem, but she shouldn't let herself go so long without drinking, especially with a glass at her hand. Tovera stood at the stairhead. It's Miranda Dorst, she said quietly. She came to see you. Send her up, said Adele. What she was doing wasn't important. Her lips hinted at a frozen smile. No human activity is important. Everyone dies. Everything dies. The cosmos dies. If you are part of a family, however, you have family obligations. Adele had spent her first 31 years alone, though until she was 16, she had lived in Xenos with her parents and sister. When she met Daniel, she had joined a family. She had become a sissy, a member of the crew of the corvette Princess Cecile, and through that fellowship, a part of the vastly extended RCN family. Adele much preferred her current situation, and no one had ever accused the Mundys of avoiding their obligations. Besides, Adele liked Miranda. She was intelligent and was grounded in the real world. Miranda and her mother had lived in straitened circumstances since the death of her father, an RCN captain. Furthermore, Miranda was extremely tough, though there was nothing in her appearance to suggest that. Adele's mouth quirked again, perhaps with a hint of regret. Toughness wasn't the first attribute strangers thought of on meeting Adele Mundy, either. Miranda came up the three flights of stairs ahead of Tovera. It was an unusual display of Tovera's favor that she did not interpose herself between her mistress and an approaching visitor. Good afternoon, Miranda, Adele said. Put those chip files on the floor. Or she could hold them in her lap as Daniel had. It was all one to Adele. And sit down. Miranda entered, looking about with her usual bright interest. She wore a pantsuit of brown tweed under a short cape which was either tan or gold, depending on the angle of the light. She wore her perfectly tailored garments with grace, as she had done all things of which Adele was aware. 
Adele knew that Miranda and her mother Madeline continued to make their own clothing. She had never asked whether that was whim or a philosophy on the Dorst's part. It certainly wasn't a matter of necessity anymore. Daniel was a notably open-handed man, and he wasn't stinting his fiancée and her mother. Thank you for receiving me, Adele, Miranda said. She placed the files on the floor and sat without touching the chair with her hands. I realize that you're always busy. Adele shrugged. I'm transcribing logbooks, she said. I will often find useful information in primary sources, which isn't carried over into compilations. I need to skim the contents as I copy the logs, however, so that I have an idea of what is in each one. In a crisis, the real index is in my mind. She smiled faintly. She saw no reason to pretend to Miranda that she wasn't good at her job. Then she said, What do you want from me? Miranda looked blank for a moment, then clapped her hands in delight. She began to laugh. Adele's lips stiffened. I was too abrupt. Well, people who knew her didn't visit for small talk. Oh, I'm sorry, Miranda gasped through her gust of laughter. Please, please. The laughter got the better of her again. She stood and unexpectedly took Adele's hands. Her firm grip was a reminder of Miranda's comment that she played field hockey at school. Miranda straightened and released Adele's hand. I apologize, she said. I realize that was very impolite, but I've... She backed into her chair again without taking her eyes from Adele. Adele, she said. That's the first time I've laughed in... Well, since Master Sand came to Bantry in a flurry. I've been trying to pretend everything was all right, so that Daniel wouldn't worry about me and I'd make it worse. She swallowed, then gave Adele a transfiguring smile. And then I came here, Miranda said. And you were you, and I didn't have to pretend anymore about anything. It was such a relief. Adele supposed she'd just been complimented. Others might not feel it was a compliment, but she smiled as broadly as she ever did. That was rather the point of the statement, wasn't it? I can generally be expected to be me, Adele said. But since that wasn't what you came expecting to learn, my question still stands. Is there anything I can do that will help Daniel with whatever he's preparing to do? Miranda said primly. I'm not asking where he's going or what he's doing or, or. She was losing her careful calm. She paused, swallowed, and resumed. Or anything I shouldn't know about. And I came to you because you'll tell me the truth. Yes said Adele as she considered the situation. You have to remember that most of Daniel's previous experience with women, all his previous experience so far as Adele had seen, has been with a type who struggle every day in deciding which color earrings to wear. He knows that you're different, but when he's busy, he is probably operating by rote rather than thinking. Miranda smiled toward her clasped hands, then looked up at Adele. At parties, I've met some of Daniel's previous acquaintances, she said. Her voice was soft with good humor. They're lovely, very lovely. Which explains how their genetic material survives in the human species. I've had similar thoughts, Adele said. Miranda was a remarkably level-headed person. As for your question, I don't know anything you can do for Daniel. Beyond what you're doubtless doing already, of course. However... 
There had been a hint of disappointment in Miranda's expression. It vanished at the qualifying, however. Since you're here, there's something you can do for me. I'd like to analyze a situation I'm involved in in front of an intelligent neutral party. I don't care about your opinion. All right, said Miranda. Her expression was alert, but then it usually was. If it's all right for you to speak to me, security, I mean. In my experience, Adele said, security is a word people use to conceal information. I'm a librarian. I was trained to make information available to others. She felt her lips quirk toward a smile. If my superior decides she cannot accept the way I handle information, Adele said, she can discharge me. Or call me out, I suppose. I've seen no indication to date that she feels any concern about my behavior. Miranda smiled very broadly, but she did not speak. I expect to visit the Ribbon Stars in the near future, Adele said. She had emptied her glass. She reached for the pitcher, then thought of her guest and said, Would you like some beer? Or, well, anything. I'm sure the pantry is well stocked. The Shippers and Merchants Treasury rented the use of the second floor of Chatsworth Minor for meetings in a private setting. They stored various entertainment paraphernalia, like wine and liquor, in the cellar against need. While Captain Leary was on Cinnabar, he had the use of the treasury's space, which he thought he was renting from Adele directly. Beer would be fine, Miranda said, if there's... Oh! Tovera stepped through the open doorway and handed Miranda a tall glass like Adele's. Adele poured. Ah, she said. Adele had no reason to be embarrassed. Her visitor was unexpected and would take what she was offered, still. I should warn you that this is bitter beer from Owsley County. From Chatsworth Major, in fact, though the estate is no longer in the Mundy family. Thank you, Miranda said. She sipped, then drank deeply. She didn't say how delightful the taste was, or how she had always liked bitter, or any one of a dozen other brightly false statements that Adele expected. She just drank. Don't blame Daniel too much, Miranda, Adele said, speaking what she had just thought. You're easy to underestimate. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Bain intern Rachel Mintel, who has completed her Bain internship and is about to get out there in the world and do good things. And to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the wrath of Achilles, the amusing musings of that Gabby Calliope, bundled together with arms and the man and the yummy fruit of that forbidden tree which tastes a bit like mango. And all sent up into the stratosphere to explode in fireworks of praise and gratitude without altering the carbon footprint one jot or tittle to Frederick Turner, author of Apocalypse, a science fiction epic poem now being serialized weekly at the Bane.com website. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> <laughs>